0: Welcome to the Hong Kong On Screen podcast, brought to you by Hong Kong On Screen, a Los Angeles-based non-profit organization promoting films and culture of Hong Kong. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Hong Kong On Screen podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us, Professor Chris Berry from King's College London. Professor Berry, why don't you go ahead and say a few words about yourself?
1: Thanks, Justin. Um... Yeah, my name's Chris Berry. I teach film at King's College London, and I've been working on Chinese film since um, the late 1970s, believe it or not. I did my MA and PhD at UCLA. And um, in the 1980s, I was working for a few years in China Film Corporation, doing helping them with subtitles and their publicity materials and things like that, um, including <clears throat> at that time, a lot of materials to do with the so-called fifth generation.
0: Right. And today, our episode's going to be part of our four-part series on Pharaoh, My Concubine, which is a seminal Chinese film released in 1993, and it's having its 30th anniversary this year. And it has a new 4K restoration, and it's touring theaters worldwide. Um, Fair My Concubine is maybe best known for being the first and to date only Chinese language film to win the coveted Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival, the top prize. And it's a melodrama that spans a few decades about uh, an opera troupe with two actors, um, Dia Yi and Xiao Lou, who have a kind of unrequited gay romance, and then later in the movie, a prostitute Ju Xian also gets involved in this love triangle as they go through basically all the historical movements of China in the early 20th century. Um, so, because this is the Hong Kong on Screen podcast, and I want to first contextualize this movie as part of Hong Kong cinema and Chinese cinema, perhaps maybe curiously this movie, even though it was made in China, made in Beijing, filmed entirely in Mandarin. It was Hong Kong's uh, submission to the Academy Awards for the best foreign language film as it was known back then. So, Professor Berry, I guess my first question for you is, to what extent is this a Hong Kong film and to what extent is this a Chinese film and why is there this kind of national category confusion going on?
1: Well, I guess um, the main reason that it has Hong Kong attribution is because of the production circumstances and that a lot of the production money came from Hong Kong. And that has to do with the situation of the fifth generation and also quite a lot of other directors in China after 1989, after the Tiananmen, uh, so-called Tiananmen incident or Tiananmen massacre uh, and the fall of the democracy movement. At that point, the possibility for making critical or unusual films within the system in China kind of disappeared for a while. And so I think the the authorities hoped that everyone would knuckle under and, uh, you know, follow, toe the party line. But what they had not realized was that people like Chen Kai-ge, the director of Farewell, My Concubine, and others were by then already quite famous internationally and that they could get international production money for their films and in fact a lot of the uh east asian producers and i'm thinking here of not only hong kong but also taiwan and japan were aware of this uh, very difficult situation these filmmakers were facing and they were willing to Uh, try to help and try to support their productions which they also believed had the potential to earn money um so that's the number one reason and the number two reason is that um farewell my concubine is based on a novel by a hong kong author
0: Mm -hmm. yeah um so farewell my concubine actually has a production background that spans all three areas in the um Chinese language diaspora, I guess. Uh, we have producer Xu Feng and the production company Thomson Films, which is actually a Taiwanese corporation. Xu Feng herself being a very famous former Taiwanese actress and nowadays a Taiwanese media property mogul. And then we have novelist author Lillian Lee, Li, also the screenwriter of this film. And if you listen to our other episodes of our podcast, you know that actually Fairmont Concubine, the story originates from a television episode that was made for Radio Television Hong Kong, which is kind of like the uh, public broadcaster of Hong Kong back then. And then Lillian Lee adopted it as her own novel and then adopted her own screenplay as well. And then there's also maybe the most prominent part of this movie, which is the star, Leslie Zheng, who is a very famous Hong Kong pop singer and actor and idol back then. And and then obviously you have the director, Chen Kaige ge and the rest of the cast and the film filming itself being done in Beijing. So it really is a true collaboration between Taiwan, China, and Hong Kong. That is, I wouldn't say impossible, but very unlikely nowadays, 30 years later.
1: We often forget that that was a very special period where you know, after the Cold War um, started to come to to melt a little bit um, in the 1980s, filmmakers, everybody, but especially filmmakers in Hong Kong and Taiwan were very eager to reconnect with their counterparts on the mainland and vice versa. And so for a period, there were lots of connections and a very optimistic sense of, you know, a rapprochement, new friendliness, and an emergent... Um, they talk about, you know, um, Sun Di, Liang, Liang An, Di, mm-hmm. you know, two coastlines, two, um, Coast, coastline, two yeah. banks, and i.e. Taiwan and the mainland, and three territories, the PRC, Hong Kong, and Taiwan. And there was this kind of sense of collaboration and mutual discovery and mutual admiration.
0: Yeah, um, so we've talked a bit about this fifth generation term. So what exactly does it refer to? And yeah, tell us a little bit about what the fifth generation is.
1: Okay, um, there are some different accounts of who the other four were, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, And so maybe we don't need to go through that. Yeah. But um, one crucial factor is that in mainland in the PRC um, at that time, there was only one film school, the Beijing Film Academy, and it would take in a group of students, train them over the next three to four years, five years maybe, graduate them, and then take in the next lot, right? Mm-hmm. So they had just had a group graduate um, in the early 60s before the Cultural Revolution began. Then they were closed down during the Cultural Revolution. And then they took in another group. So there was this big gap between the previous group and the group they took in um, in the late 1970s that graduated in, I've got to be careful here, 1981 or 1982. Mm -hmm. And that is the group that is known as the fifth generation. So some people say it's five classes at the Beijing Film Academy, and some people go right back to the 20s and talk about you know, different generations of directors. But everybody agrees that that group was the fifth generation. Mm -hmm. It's also important to recognize that the kind of films they were making were just so different from what people had seen coming out of China before, probably because of this long gap um, Mm -hmm. and also the changes that China was going through already in the early 1980s. And so... You know, we were used to all these very um, boy loves tractor sort of socialist, you know, production bumper harvest films. And then suddenly a whole lot of films that looked much more like auteur filmmaking started to come out. And that's what the fifth generation is known for.
0: Yeah. And they were kind of very visually spectacular, huge production values. And very like a big upgrade in the visual cinematography department compared to the previous films. would you I agree? think
1: it was I, I think I would say it was different. I mean, the previous mm-hmm. films often also had very spectacular cinematography. If I think about a film like Surfs, you know, which is set in Tibet, it's very spectacular, but it's much more of a kind of very clean classical look mm-hmm. um rather than for example, I mean, they would never use the amount of shadows and darkness that you see in Farewell, My mm. Porcupine. Everything would be very evenly lit. So it was much more that, the sort of thing you would associate with Hollywood studio filmmaking, maybe, um, and that heritage. And then the fifth generation, having seen a lot of, during their education, having seen a lot of French New Wave, Italian New Wave, mm. as well as New Hollywood, were wanting to try new things.
0: Yeah,
1: um, their budgets were not high, but they did achieve, you know, as you say, often beautiful-looking films.
0: Yeah. Um, so other members, famous members of this fifth generation, include Zhang Yimou, who is probably the most famous of the bunch and is still very actively working today. He directed *To Live*, um, and then later he he directed *Hero*, which is one of the highest-grossing. Chinese language films in U.S. cinema history. And then he also directed the opening ceremony of the 2008 Olympic Games. And then we have Chen Kaige, the director of Fair my Concubine. We have uh, Tian Zhuang Zhuang. We have uh, Gu Changwei, who is the t- cinematographer on Fair my Concubine. So um, what are some of the kind of visual or audio characteristics in Fair my Concubine you can see, or story elements even, that you would think are typical or... Um, uh, yeah, typical of the fifth generation.
1: Well, I think um, we need to note that the fifth generation went, underwent a change. Um, when they first started making films in about 19, uh, 1984, 85, films like Yellow Earth, which Chen Kai mm-hmm. directed and Zhang Yi Mo uh, was the cinematographer on, those films were quite, um, quite avant garde. Uh, they were quite experimental in some ways often very minimal dialogue, uh, unusual cinematography in the case of Yellow Earth, very low horizon lines and huge big skies and so on. But they got very small audiences. They were not popular films. They were critically mm-hmm. appreciated. And that changed in um, 1988, 89, when Zhang Mo made his first movie as director, Red Sorghum. Mm-hmm. And Red Sorghum, although... It was still, um, in many ways, in, in its narrative, uh, which was a story set um, in the pre-revolutionary era, um, again, in, in a sort of the rural, wild, that was not so dissimilar from some earlier ones, but the story was told in a much more engaging, classic narrative way, Uh, with lots of uh, pace and uh, uh, much more, and lots of music and so on. That film was a big hit at the box office in China. And it was also the film that won the Golden Bear. Mm -hmm. And I think it's fair to say uh, Chiang Kai-ge must have noticed that his cinematographer was perhaps outdoing him. Um, And so Farewell, My Concubine Uh, is a lot like in its narrative structure, its paciness, its drama, and so on. It's much more like Red Sorghum. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, he also, um, what can we say, borrowed Zhang Yimou's star, Gong Li. Zhang Yimou discovered Gong Li with Red Sorghum. And so Chen Kaige borrowed her for Farewell, My Concubine. And he was clearly trying to, you know, catch up to Zhang Yimou and indeed he did because as you said he got the golden palm
0: yeah I also take note that the kind of historical melodrama element of it to me is very much a fifth generation thing or at least it's appeared in other fifth generation films where you have this huge like historical epic outlook on like a few periods of Chinese history from the first Republic of China period in the 1920s, the film starts there, and then it goes to the Japanese invasion, and then it goes to the second Chinese civil war, and then the communists come to power, and then the Cultural Revolution happens, and then the end of the Cultural Revolution. So the movie is just jumping through all these time periods, and then it's also very melodramatic. All the kind of um, character decisions coincide with the historical upheavals, the stakes are super high and everyone is like very emotionally invested and that's a very fifth generation thing with like big yeah
1: you're right Mm -hmm. and in that period especially because that's the same period in which Zhang Yimou makes to live and Tian Zhuang Zhuang makes Blue Kite which are also these kind of historical melodramas Mm -hmm. um the early films were also very often historical um Tian Zhuangzhuang's Horse Thief, set in Tibet, supposedly before the revolution, Chen Kai-ge and Zhang Yimou's Yellow Earth, again set before the revolution. In all these films, it's clear that for the fifth generation, a really key issue is the cultural revolution, which they had all gone through as young people and which had been a major moment of disillusion for them with the, with the, the, the government and with the ideology of the revolution. And so it's the central thing in all those films. But I think the early ones were more allegorical, right? They didn't, Mm -hmm. people could read Horse Thief as an allegory for uh, Mao worship in the Cultural Revolution, even though it was nothing to do with the Cultural Revolution. People could read Yellow Earth in the same way. But in the 90s, they directly make Mm -hmm. films about um, you know these uh, this, these historical periods, and there, I think there are two things that are important to note there, which loops back to what we were talking about mm-hmm. earlier. One is Ho Xiaoxian had made City, of, City Sadness, of Sadness, yes, right, a big Taiwanese historical melodrama about Taiwan's historical trauma, and I think they were all hugely admiring of that and felt the need to do you know to sort of again do that for the PRC and then secondly because they were operating with foreign money and foreign investment they could take the risk of the film being unacceptable to the PRC censors if they could still release it overseas and earn money overseas and in fact that's what happened with nearly all of the films I've mentioned.
0: Yeah and that's no longer a thing that's possible where you can release it. Different version overseas and release another one, or not release your film in back in the mainland. And also, *Hear My Concubine* was made um, after the Tiananmen Square incident. And uh, perhaps to maybe contextualize things a bit in 1993 in Hong Kong, there was this idea that Hong Kong was responsible for saving Chinese democracy, and like we have to save our compatriots back in China. So I think um, this idea of of um, viewing history in this critical way from a Hong Kong perspective, viewing Chinese history from a Hong Kong perspective in a critical way was also a thing that was popular or in fashion back then. Um, so I have, I have my next question is when did the fifth generation end? And when, I mean, we don't need to get into the sixth generation, but like, where is the historical mark? And is it fair to consider Fairmont concubine being like towards the end of the fifth generation?
1: Well, I mean, the fifth generation is a bunch of people are, as you've said, still active, Mm -hmm. right? Zhang Yimou is still making films. As a kind of filmmaking, some people, a lot of people, in fact, will say Red Storgham already marked the end of the fifth generation as a kind of experimental new wave style of filmmaking. Um, But perhaps we could say that in, I mean, the government reacted to films like Farewell My Concubine to Live and Blue Kite by banning them. Um, it became very difficult for those filmmakers. And it became very clear that if they wanted to continue making films it, inside the PRC, they would have to toe the party line, literally. Mm-hmm. And so I think by the late 1990s, they'd all either stop, you know, either temporarily stop filmmaking or done that, had knuckled under. Um, And we could say that fifth generation as a filmmaking phenomenon, a style was over.
0: Yeah, it's very hard for me to reconcile the fact that that Chen Kaige is the same one that's making the propaganda Battle of Lake Changjin one and two movies today, same with Zhang Yimou. And they are really like churning out these propaganda films in 2023.
1: I th- yeah, I mean, of course, this is very, it's a bit of a sidetrack, but I think with Zhang Mo, there's always a lot of ambivalence in his films, even though, I mean, he's done very well out of his, um, you know, rapprochement with the regime. But when you look at, I don't know if you've seen um, Full River Red, for example, and you, you look at it and you think, well, on one level, it's an ultra patriotic film, but on another level, the, 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 the society that it shows everyone being patriotic for is so bloodthirsty, so nasty, that it's very hard to feel, you know, very proud of it. So I think there's a lot of ambivalence in his films, at least. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, you know, I, I mean, I'm not sure what happened with Chiang Kai-gur, but I'm pretty, I, there's a long pattern of the film bureau Calling people in and just basically saying, You either, you know, you either do what we say. I mean, well, you either make films that we can accept or you're going to stop making films. So, yeah,
0: well, enough about this depressing state of Chinese (laughs) cinema for now. And let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the queer elements of this movie, Mm -hmm. which is maybe another. Most stand I mean, I've said this a few times already, but like a very super prominent part of this movie being a queer Chinese film starring one of the few, um, well, he wasn't openly out yet, but later openly out stars of uh, Chinese language cinema in a gay, um, ambiguous, sexually ambiguous, androgynous role. And I think the fact that this movie was made in 1983 and it has like some awkward, at least awkward parts of its gender and sexual politics, if not downright kind of morally questionable parts, I think it makes it more a more interesting text. So uh, I guess my first question for you is, um, when viewed in the lens of 2023, do you think Fairmont Concubine is like acceptable or upstanding in its depiction of queerness?
1: I guess people would not find it acceptable today. And I, but I think, you know, we have to, I think we have to see it as something that is symptomatic of its time mm-hmm. and the place of its, where it was produced. As you said, Leslie Chung didn't feel able to come out at this time. Um, Chung Kai ge by all accounts, didn't think it was a gay movie, right? When he was asked about it as a gay movie, he genuinely seemed surprised that how he didn't notice that it might be understood as a gay movie, I don't know. But that's a whole other question. Um, so I think we have to take all that into account. So you do see in the film scenes that suggest D, the 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 character who plays the female roles, And the one who is, you know, clearly in love with the other guy, um, he is kind of forced by, uh, uh, you know, acts that are symbolic rape um, into some sort of Mm -hmm. uh, identification as female. um, And all of that would be very troubling, I think, to audiences that today that have an understanding of sexuality as being about sexual orientation uh, transgender and so on, being about gender identity, and mm-hmm. and, and these are two separate realms. Um, the film sort of conflates them, but then if you, you, I think we also have to think about this historically, and not only in China. If you, uh, you know, go to different other countries or also to the West at certain periods, there's a lot of overlap and conflation in that way, and also, uh, you know, it's not unusual for people to think that your sexual orientation can be sort of forced or learnt or something like that. Um, I'm not saying that I agree with that, but I'm not surprised that we see those kind of elements in the film.
0: Yeah, there's this implication in this movie that the main character, De Yi's gay orientation, is only formed because of childhood sexual abuse, and that's obviously a... An outdated view nowadays, um, but it was quite popular back then as like a myth in among you know the people, and and then as you said there's this confusion between sexuality and gender where, because Cheng yi is so invested in portraying don roles which are female roles that he falls in love with a man as if a man can't love another man, but I think what kind of redeems the movie or saves the movie for me is the ending which is, um, you know, a lot of people might consider it kind of depressing because, spoiler alert, it's a suicide. But I think it's kind of like a declaration of the homosexual, homosexual part of the movie because even at the very end, after all the turmoil and confusion and attempts, Cheng Ge yi still goes back to his initial position, which is he refuses to identify himself as a female and he identifies himself as a male, which is like part of the opera lyric it's all kind of very intricately stacked onto one another and yeah and I think the movie shows us that oh he identifies himself as a guy and he is in love with this other guy and I think that is what kind of salvages the movie for me and then the ending is yeah very controversial I wonder what you think about that
1: I think there are a lot of um again a lot of things that are quite difficult to read in some sort of very definite way chinese codes of masculinity any or anyway emphasize very strongly the idea of homo homosocia- homosociality mm-hmm. you know strong bonds between men that are emotional bonds are not uh, are not necessarily understood as sexual bonds yes so again that the the, the very ending of the film where Yes, their their affection for each other, their commitment to each other, if you like, is very sort of, even though it's a suicide scene, as you said, it's also sort of heartwarming in some sense, but it's also difficult to know how we should read Gay's position at that moment. Um, And and I think that's also quite complicated. you know, if you look at mar- lots of martial arts cinema, mm-hmm. the the idea of the brotherhood bond between martial artists who are, you know, part of the same group or whatever, fighters who are warriors who are part of the same group, is often a very emotional relationship. And it, when those films are sometimes, sometimes when they're shown in the West, especially older films, people laugh a bit because they're a bit embarrassed. Yes. They, they, yeah. So this is, you know, again makes it quite hard to read my personal feeling is that you know i i prefer a film that came out a couple of years later called east palace west palace mm-hmm. and there's a bit of an argument about is farewell my concubine or is east palace west palace the first chinese gay movie partly that's because of the hong kong production circumstances of farewell my concubine but also this issue of you know did chung kai Gur think he was making a gay movie There's no question that Zhang Yuan did think he was making a gay movie. He made it entirely as a PRC movie. And I think the character in his film, although also problematic in many ways, which we don't have time to go into here, is somehow much even more defiant character. Um, And that is a bit more appealing to me. But yeah, I think both films, whatever their problems are landmark films in, Chinese queer film history, for sure.
0: Yeah, I think defiant is a good word to use, like to summarize my feelings towards the queerness part of the movie and why I think it's ultimately acceptable, if not, you know, I I endorse it because I think it's very defiant and I think it's very strongly tied to Cheng Dieyi's queer desire throughout the movie, even if it's shunned and rejected. I feel like the movie holds onto that part very strongly. Partially because of Leslie Jung's performance is really so magnetic and just kind of so fierce that you just can't help but not look at him. I don't even think Changkai Ge was necessarily kind of really mining it that much. Like, obviously he's a he's in a very big part of the movie, but I think you can kind of feel this obliviousness of the camera towards the performance that he was giving. It's a little bit removed and and he's not as much in the movie as I would think, because Leslie Cheung gets top billing out of the three actors, but it really is very much is very balanced between the three characters in Love Triangle. But if you really watch the movie, then you can see like Leslie Cheung really steals the show.
1: I, of course, the original didn't have very much of a role for female characters. Mm-hmm. And I think because Chung kai Ge wanted to, you know, you, to work with Gong Li and to use the fact that she was at the top of her international fame on the film festival circuit at that time, he greatly developed her role. I think she's pretty powerful in it as well. Um, Although I agree with what you say about Leslie Chung being really magnet, magnetic in the film. But for me, it's another something that I'm, again, something I'm not so happy about. I, I feel the film would have been a tighter film if 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 he hadn't done that if he'd focused more on the relationship between the two Mm -hmm. men but maybe that's just another indicator of the fact that he wasn't comfortable with the sort of um, gay element of the film yeah
0: and i think queerness is obviously not just related to Um, gender and sexuality and who you love and who you choose not to love. I think another part of the movie that's very queer to me is that it's very much a performance movie to me. Um, We have three very powerhouse performances in this movie. They're very melodramatic and they're very kind of high stakes, as I said. And also the movie is very interested in the idea of using performance and performativity as a weapon to kind of get what you want, to negotiate in politics. Um, and this line between reality and fiction and kind of losing yourself in the fiction, that's also a very queer concept. And this weaponization of sexuality in performance, like, is sexuality a performance? Is it real? Um, like, is Leslie Jung, this uh, is Cheng Yi the character kind of performing? And then he obviously at one point literally performs to kind of win his lover's freedom. So I think the movie is interested in these ideas as well, not just necessarily on the level of oh, is Cheng Jie in love with shallow in a gay way or not. Yeah. I also want to add that I think maybe not not to justify China Chinese culture a bit in like early 20th century which I'm sure was very homophobic, but I think it's quite amazing to me that a cisgender male actor could play female roles and become like a national opera star, a celebrity, Uh, I think that's not something that necessarily can happen today or in English speaking regions. And I think that you can think of that as quite progressive in some way.
1: Again, I think it's a different world, right? Um, It was completely conventional in Beijing opera that all the roles were played by men. Um, There are other opera forms where all the roles are played by women, right? And certainly part of what the audience appreciated was the uh, the, uh, performance skills in being able to perform the opposite gender. Um, In the case of Beijing opera, it's also well known that there was a high level of what we would today call sex work involved with Beijing opera. Mm -hmm. That um, these roles, the dan roles, um, the female roles were... Um, highly eroticized among the connoisseurs so but it, you know while we think of being gay as an identity right um, it's also quite clear that nearly all the patrons were also people who were married who had wives and children but they also had this passion for their favorite done actors who they often patronized and often expected to have sexual relationships with so it's clearly a very diff, you know, a very different cultural form. I don't know whether I've it, whether it's progressive or not, because it's so removed mm-hmm. from an identity based idea of, you know, uh sexuality that underpins what we're working with today.
0: Yeah. And that's something you see in the movie as well when Chen Dia Yi has like a sugar daddy for some parts of the movie with UNC at the character. Yeah, played uh, by Ge, think, yo. Yeah. yeah, it's just an amazing <laughs> cast, which is like insane. Um, I just think it's kind of telling that uh, Cheng Gia-Yi, the character, was a big celebrity playing female roles in the 1920s, and then Leslie Cheung himself was kind of doing more androgynous performances on stage in 1997 and later 2000, and he was kind of very brutally slaughtered by the Hong Kong press. People were calling him all these ugly things. And that's like 70 years later in Hong Kong, which is supposedly a more progressive place. So I think it's interesting to me how gender and sexuality is always evolving and society's views are always evolving. And hopefully it's evolved to a slightly better place now. Um,
1: Yeah, I think um, we have to recognize that the introduction of euro-american or western whatever term you want to use ideas around sexuality as an identity um was actually and and as initially as something to be stigmatized or even an illness to be cured right was for many in many cultures made it much more difficult for people who experience desires for members of the same sex right mm. um so I don't know. I mean, it seems to me that there's it's so hard for me to think of this in some sort of linear manner as, yeah. you know, progress or not. But it's certainly a moment where the world is changing very rapidly. Yeah, And it doesn't surprise me that, um, you know, someone like Dee in that movie is able to find a space for themselves in the society and to be accepted and indeed worshipped by his fans. Whereas Leslie Chung, although he was fan-worshipped, as you say, the critics were much, and in other words, the sort of gatekeepers in society in Hong Kong were much less willing to accept him.
0: Yeah, I thought just that just came to my head, is in the movie, Chung jai sexuality is never explicitly like condemned. Like There's this scene very late in the movie when they're in the Cultural Revolution and they're being like publicly shamed and then when um one of the characters, I don't want to spoil who it is, like publicly shames Cheng Dia Yi. It's like he can't even bring himself to mention the sexuality part of it. Whereas I feel like a Western version of this movie, just imagine for a second there's a Western version of this movie. I think there would be lots of homophobic scenes with like homophobic slurs thrown at Cheng Dia Yi just to make the point of homophobia. But in the movie I feel like it's never like his gayness is never looked down on even if it's not necessarily like the the emphasis of the movie.
1: I think after the revolution, China did become extremely homophobic. And, you know, again, this is all very ironic. It was somehow seen as part of being modern, but also being revolutionary. And that also meant not being degenerate. So Mm -hmm. in the same way that prostitution was... Removed from society, uh, or certainly from visibility, uh, homosexuality was also removed. There are lots of stories um, about how you know. In, in there are claims of violent repression in Shanghai and Beijing in after forty nine, and certainly in my own personal experience. By the time I got to China in nineteen eighty five, um, most 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 people claimed there was no homosexuality in China. Mm-hmm. It just didn't exist. there was no such thing. It was a western disease, an illness, all that kind of rhetoric. so again, if you think about that context, maybe it's not so surprising that just a few years later you know chunkger may may have struggled with some of this content, mm-hmm. yeah,
0: yeah, well, it seems like we've kind of backed ourselves into another depressing corner um so i want to um switch gears a little bit and talk about the cultural Revolution part of the movie which we have mentioned a lot um well that's
1: another depressing corner for yes, sure but let's yes. go <laughs> we can't avoid it
0: yeah um this movie very heavily depicts the cultural Revolution very explicitly like what went down back then which is still a rarity to me in chinese cinema and maybe impossible today in 2023 to depict. Um, So yeah, maybe Professor Berry, talk to us a little bit about how the cultural revolution is shown in the movie and like what kind of significance does that have?
1: Um, In the film, the cultural revolution is shown as a time when um, the attempts to encourage revolutionary culture and revolutionary ideas of what's appropriate or not um, becomes violent, becomes out of control. Beijing opera is seen as part of the old society, the society that should be thrown away and gotten rid of. But I think the crucial thing in this film are the scenes in which Xiaolou is Betrayed, essentially, Mm -hmm. by his own adopted son. Because Chen Kai-ge felt very, very guilty um, for having the way he treated his own father during the Cultural Revolution. Because like many young people at that age, he was persuaded or whatever you want to say, um, encouraged to criticize his own parents. And this, of course, in a, what is today, uh, Confucianism is praised in China and held up as something wonderful in the Cultural Revolution period. Again, that was part of the, the old society. And people, young people were told, no, you shouldn't be so respectful to the older generation. Um, you, you know, you must criticize them in the name of the revolution. So I think that's a large part of why Chen kai ge wanted to make this film. He said that quite often, that for him, it was a very personal film. And that's why those scenes, again, are so prominent in the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yes, I think that's what I would say there. The Cultural Revolution, when it was launched in 1965, 66, Mao's slogan was, it is right to rebel. And he encouraged students, high school students, university students to rebel They were given the right to travel all over the country, uh, free of cost, um, to go and conduct their revolutionary activities. And um, a lot of older people were murdered, frankly, Mm -hmm. Uh, and at a minimum, very viciously criticized. You hear this term criticism. Criticism doesn't just mean somebody saying, well, we don't agree with you. It was quite Physical, it was often public, it was often painful, literally physically, and it was certainly humiliating.
0: Yes, and you can see that in the movie as well when they are later publicly shamed in like a plaza of thousands of people. I think it's shocking to me how explicit it is in this movie and how kind of suddenly it happens. Really all the major historical events that happen in this movie are quite sudden and they just suddenly jump like two or three years ahead and you just, ooh, like it it just happened. Oh, the Japanese are in town, right? Ah,
1: shock horror, yeah. I
0: I think it, I mean, you can say it's kind of like sloppy writing, but I do think it kind of captures the brutality and the suddenness of all the historical changes that China went through back then.
1: Um, I think it's also about saying how for ordinary people, you know, they... They were very much these things. So sort of suddenly happened to them. Very often, they they weren't in a situation of control or choice. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: yeah. I think this time watching this movie about the Cultural Revolutionary part, what stood out to me was happened even before the public shaming scene. It was there was this very long minutes long long take between um, uh, Xiao and Zhu Xian in their home, and they're smashing all these relics they had in the past which are maybe precious props or costumes from opera productions perhaps and and they're in um normal people plains clothes like it's i think it's one of the few times or to me it was the first time really seeing them out of their like opera costumes in cultural revolution style kind of communist clothes and it was very startling to me i thought the movie was very successful in portraying this crushing heartbreak of these people trying to preserve a national art form their culture and failing at the same time struggling and failing and it's, it, it really was very crushing to me to see like like also Dai Yi the character you know fighting so hard to preserve Beijing opera and it was replaced by Ban xi which is the chinese communist propaganda style of opera not to say which one is superior or whatever because that's a subjective thing but like it was essentially replaced and wiped out of the country and it's it's like that that crushing weight is really very difficult to bear throughout in the second half of the movie and and yeah yeah. i think this movie also yeah go ahead go ahead i think this movie also kind of dangerously suggests that japanese people were more appreciative of beijing opera than chinese people which I thought it was very interesting to me. I actually didn't know that. I don't know if it's fact or fiction, but yeah, I, I think that's a kind of contemporary globalist kind of view on things and certainly dangerous today if you suggest that Yeah, you do that people, today. people. Yeah, yeah.
1: I think, um, again, I think attitudes towards, you know, traditional Chinese culture have changed a lot. <clears throat> so... Even, again, in the 1980s, I remember when I was there, very few young people of my age, so in their 20s, had any interest in traditional opera. Um, And even people in their 30s and 40s mostly dismissed Mm. it and didn't understand why. But, you know, the style of music is so different from contemporary popular music, so you can see why, Maybe people didn't relate to it. And all those things that have, have, have now been reclaimed as national treasures, you know, and mm. are back back in, at least at being preserved. And I think, indeed, there is a new generation of people who are genuinely interested in them. But as for, you know, the portrayal of the Cultural Revolution, I think um, we need to remember that, in the years after the Cultural Revolution, in other words, from about 1977 to about 1981, uh, there were at least 80 or 90 movies made about the Cultural Revolution era. And they were very um, explicit about how violent, and destructive it had been for many people involved. Uh, but in 81, the Chinese government sort of declared that the question of the Cultural Revolution had been settled, if you like. And so after that, it became much more difficult to make films about it. It wasn't impossible, but it was more difficult. And that's still true today. I mean, Zhang Yimou, just a few years ago, made a film called One Second, where he, which went back to the Cultural Revolution again. Clearly for him and his generation, it's the sort of original trauma moment. But the film was withheld from it was supposed to I think it was supposed to premiere in Berlin if I remember correctly mm-hmm. and it was pulled at the last minute and you know it, it took a long time before it was released and presumably went through quite a bit of censorship
0: yeah um and I think going back to what you said about uh Beijing opera and Chinese opera I was born way later than even later than the movie came up and I do think of Beijing opera and Cantonese opera as this kind of archaic thing where I just, I don't really even understand like the appeal, like what are these people singing? I can't understand a word. And I think the Cultural Revolution was definitely responsible for a lot of that kind of destruction of that heritage. But yeah, it's it's certainly difficult to understand anything that happens in those opera scenes. But you know, I've never watched it with Chinese subtitles. I wish it was available. usually with this restoration for example it's usually yeah. if you watch it in the us or the uk it's only available with english subtitles which i think it's a shame uh, because yeah. i really wish i could understand more of the lyrics that they were singing but yeah it certainly was a huge phenomenon like 100 years ago and a very different society and culture back then
1: yeah i mean people some people draw parallels between the chung diei character and meilan fang Mm-hmm. who was, you know, a sort of megastar of Beijing opera in the 20s and 30s. And he was very much one of the people who he played those roles like Dee, But he was also one of the people who made Beijing opera, not just a local form, but the national treasure, the national opera. And as you know, uh, may know, he toured internationally all over the world including to Moscow, where Eisenstein saw him performing and talked about how he got a lot of his ideas uh, for things like associative montage and so on oh, from watching that. Beijing opera. So, you know, it's a form, it was a form that then was very much more appreciated. But yes, I mean, I, I do remember one of my colleagues in the office when I was in China, You know, I asked her whether she liked Beijing opera, and she said it sounded like cats mating. You know, and so I mean, got I got the sense okay, it's not not so hot these days. Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, And another, I guess, going back to another thing you mentioned, which was like the Communist Party after Mao Zedong's death, they toppled the Gang of Four, and then. They they toppled the forces behind the Cultural Revolution and suddenly the Cultural Revolution was a bad thing and you were allowed, you were even encouraged to criticize it. And it's like what you were allowed and not allowed to do was totally at the whims of the party and whatever they preferred at the moment. And I think that's why there was a lot of um, literature, which is generally referred to as scar literature, referring to the scars of the Cultural Revolution. And movies back then that were allowed to criticize for cultural evolution. And then, as you said, it kind of faded away a bit. And nowadays, it would be very difficult again to go back to that moment.
1: That's what I wrote my PhD dissertation on was those Scar movies. yeah. Mm-hmm. So yes, that's right. Um, I think we also have to recognize that uh, there is a kind of, at the moment, uh, a sort of wave of if I call it revisionist scholarship, that already sounds kind of politically critical, which I don't mean to be, but there is a wave of scholarship that wants us to, <clears throat> to develop a more nuanced approach to the cultural revolution, and to understand that it was a complex phenomenon and that we need to recognize that not, while it was indeed a disaster for many people, it wasn't necessarily a disaster for everybody, and that many people have, you know, often have m- mixed memories or even favorable memories of it. And I remember, you know, and those memories can be of things like believing in it as a time when they they begin to feel that, as young people, they didn't have to always obey, that they could be independent-minded, that they could do their own thing, um, but also. Our, we need to remember that during the Cultural Revolution decade, uh, this was the time when China passed the only constitution it's ever had in the People's Republic of China that allows workers to strike, for example, mm-hmm. you know, um, ironically, given that it's a socialist country. Um, so there, there is a complexity there. But nonetheless, I think for most people, by the time yeah. it was over, um, they were uh tired of its um, capricious, unpredictable quality of intervention demanding you do this, demanding you do that, and of course, certainly in that initial period, people in the cities, especially more middle class or educated people, suffered terribly.
0: yeah, I mean to me it was a genocide, and like it's very hard to get any positive. Outlooks from that.
1: Well, oh. genocide is a very—that's a really big term, but it was certainly. um it, I mean, many, many more people died in the famines, right? That yes. were the cause of bad government policy. So, in terms of deaths, but the difference was, the disaster was very much something that happened in the cities in 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 the Cultural Revolution. I mean, there were problems in the countryside too, but in the Great in the great leap forward and the famine that followed that at the end of the fifties and early sixties that was especially a problem in the countryside. Yes. In the cities, people still had food, and it wasn't so visible if you like for a long time. But I remember um, in nineteen eighty six, I had among uh, with other uh, people living in foreigners living in China. We had various Chinese friends, although it was pretty hard to to make contact in those days. But one friend of mine uh, was somebody who, just an ordinary person who worked in a a hospital, he wasn't a doctor or anything, but he got in, you know, we didn't see him for a while, then we heard he had been injured and he was back home on what had been a commune, must by then have been a cooperative um, with his family. And so we all cycled out there and, you know, his parents were just ordinary farmers, right? And for, I don't know how the topic turned to the Cultural Revolution and so on, or that period. But I was very sur- sort of surprised because, you know, his mother just said immediately, Oh, uh, you know, I remember what happened. I said to her, You know, so how are things, how's life? You know, how are things now? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, she said, Oh, yeah, we're doing okay. And then unprompted, she said, But of course, it was much better when Jiang Qing was around, you know. <laughs> And I and yeah, and I said, "What do you mean? You know?" And she said, "Well, we had meat then, right? We could afford meat." Mm-hmm. So you know, in her mind, it was just about yeah, sustenance, yeah. Limit, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. and yeah. at yeah. At, the, at that particular time in the early '80s, mid '80s, people on in the countryside were not doing very well. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's really kind of incredulous what you just said. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. We we've divulged quite a bit, but. I guess going back to the movie, you would Mm -hmm. consider Fermat Concubine scar literature, right?
1: Well, you could, yes, you could do, I suppose. But I think the original short story was not so much scar literature because um, Lillian Lee, who wrote it, is not somebody who went through all that. And she's not, most scar literature is sort of survivors' literature, if you like. So you could say that it's a kind of scar movie, but or an extension of the Scar movies. But the Scar movies were really the late 70s to the early 80s. And they are films where, the, you know, the majority of the plot was about the Cultural Revolution, right? Whereas mm. in this film, it's prominent, it's just one episode. But I think it is the episode that made, made Chen kai Girl want to make the movie. Okay. So I don't think he, so it's another thing where I think, you know, I don't think he wanted to make a gay movie. I'm pretty sure about that. I think he did want to make a movie that was about you know father son betrayal and regret around that and the cultural Revolution, and the terrible yes, scar that that left behind,
0: yeah, it's interesting you say that because the betrayal you're talking about with the character Xiao Si is like most people would consider a minor part of the movie, but and maybe a lot of people would consider it like weird, like like maybe you can even remove I don't know if it's part of the 20 minutes that were removed by Harvey Weinstein but maybe it was um but yeah if that that's definitely makes me think about the movie a little differently yeah
1: Yeah, I don't think I'm pretty sure that wasn't removed by Harvey but um actually I I, I don't know what was but I remember that being in the movie that I saw 30 years ago yeah
0: yeah well I guess this brings a fitting end to, I don't know how it's fitting, this brings an end to our episode. <laughs> um, I guess if there's a positive takeaway is that it was possible to make this movie in 1993 and it won a lot of awards, it it was famous, It it, it it's definitely left a very big cultural landmark, and we have Leslie Jones' It holds up well. I mean,
1: yeah. you know, watching it again 30 years later, it's stunningly beautiful, the restoration. And I say it's a very compelling movie, as you said, and, and a, a lot of that is related to what you were saying earlier about the emphasis on performance, right, and drama. And so, mm-hmm. in that way, it's very engaging, and it's a, it's a. I mean, we've made it sound like a very, very, very serious movie, which it is, but it's also a good. It's also a good watch, right? Yeah,
0: it's it's very melodramatic in a way that is very unfashionable today and people are always screaming and yelling and crying and like throwing plates and it's a it's very kind of a throwback kind of sentiment and yeah i really enjoy that part of the movie Um, and yeah i'm also very glad that leslie jung's performance was preserved um through this movie so i think there are good things to take away from it and i hope more people will get to see it because For a long period of time, the movie was like like a lot of movies made in the 90s. It was like during this transition from Laserdisc to VHS to DVD, and it was kind of stuck in rights, copyrights hell, and no one really had the rights to it. And now it's finally available, like through streaming, hopefully, and like in good quality with good English subtitles. And yeah, I hope more people get to watch it in the future and appreciate it. Well, oh, thank you very much, Professor Barry, for your time and being on our podcast, and I will hope to see, uh, talk to you soon. Thank you.
1: Great. My pleasure. Thank you very much indeed.